Morning, church. Well, everything has its limits. Don't you agree? I mean, when my father would say, uh, boy, there's a limit to my patience, I knew I was dancing on dangerous ground. There's a limit to everything. There's a limit in baseball, right? Three strikes, you're out. Uh, there's a limit to our generosity. Uh, there's a limit to forgiveness. Uh, one day, Peter tried to find out just exactly where that that limit was. And he said to Jesus something like, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Uh, up to seven times? And that sounds pretty reasonable. Seven times forgive him. Eighth time, pow, you know, hit him in the nose. There's a limit to everything. Jonah's preaching seems to be incredibly successful. It appears that Genuine repentance is happening, and the city is having this change of heart. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, you would think that Jonah would be thrilled beyond his wildest dreams. I can imagine him going back home to Israel and, and telling everyone, Man, you should see what God did in Nineveh. We saw some genuine miracles. I mean, lives have been changed because of our preaching crusade. But you'd be wrong. Jonah is furious. In fact, he believes that what God has done is wrong. In fact, he believes it is a big injustice. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Isn't that an interesting response that he has? I mean, think about that. The, the pagan sailors have, have acted better than Jonah. They prayed more than Jonah. The Ninevites, they repented more than Jonah. They act more honorably than he does. But this is really a major theme of, of this book, that, that God cares how believers act towards people who are deeply different uh, from them. Years ago, when my daughter was a teenager, she worked in a restaurant. And she told me that the absolute worst shift to work during the week was Sunday lunch. I asked her, why is that? Oh, Dad, that's when all the church people come. <laughs> and they're so rude and demanding. Shouldn't it be the opposite? God's people ought to be the most loving, the most respectful, the most just, and the, the most generous people on earth. I mean, no limits, really. Shouldn't it be that way? But not for Jonah. And sometimes not for us, if we're truthful. He did not want God to spare the city. He wanted it destroyed. I knew it. I, I, I knew, God, I knew this is what you were going to do. I, I, I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, that you are slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents and, and from sending calamity. Basically, what Jonah is saying to God is, God, you are just 
too nice for your own good. Your love has no limits. And that's a bad thing. It's kind of hilarious, isn't it? This book of Jonah is both a, calam- is both a, a tragedy and a comedy. But I think behind it is actually a, a serious question that Jonah is asking. Has God gone too far? How can he be a God of justice and evil uh, and, and let evil and violence go unpunished? How can he do that? I mean, we ask that question today. Nineveh deserved punishment. They were a wicked nation. We discovered that last week. They had committed much evil in the world. They deserve punishment. But what they get is mercy. And Jonah is so upset that he he wants to die. He says, God, take away my life. I don't want to live anymore. Why does he say this? The truth is that God is not his highest love. God is not his real God, the the thing that he trusts in the most. God should be his his only source of of real meaning in his life, but he's not. And so Jonah is saying, I have no real meaning in life anymore. I want to die. When Jonah saw the Ninevites repenting, he should have gone into the city to to teach the residents about God. What a difference that, that he might have made had he done that. Maybe a a lasting impact. Instead, he goes outside the city to watch and to see if if maybe, just maybe, God will change his mind and rain down destruction upon the city of Nineveh. You see, Nineveh's repentance is pleasing to God, but but not to Jonah. And the reason is, is because it was a threat to Israel's national interests. The will of God and the political fortunes of Israel seem to be diverging. And Jonah leaves no doubt as to which of these two concerns was more important to him. Now clearly Jonah has faith in God. But it is not as deep and fundamental to his identity as his race and nationality. His relationship to God uh, was not as basic to his significance as was his nation. God's not the center of his life. His country is. And he's ready to discard his relationship with God when he can't get his own way. That is why when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the word of God seem to be in conflict, Jonah chooses his nation over obedience to God. Now I get this. We should all be patriots. We should all love our country. But if love for your country leads you to exploit other countries or to root for an entire city to be destroyed, then guess what? You love your nation more than God. And the Bible has a word for this. And that word is idolatry. Now, when we hear that word, we think of the golden calf, for example, in the book of Exodus. But idolatry can be anything that we put in place of God, even good things. Like Jonah, it might be our country, or it might be our ideology, it might be money or power, it might even be our family. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, if anyone loves their father or their mother more than me, they're not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, that's kind of crazy talk, don't you think? 
I mean, what kind of person would be so bold? What kind of person would be so outrageous as to step into another person's life and say, hey, your allegiance to me has to be greater than everybody else? To be that bold, you either have to be God himself with the authority to demand that kind of allegiance or you're some kind of a maniac. But in either case, this does not fit a suburban, family-friendly view of Jesus which are supposed to be all about family, right? It doesn't mix. And that's precisely the point. Jesus recognizes that in our estrangement from God, in our separation from him, that we tend to put something or someone else in God's rightful place. And sometimes we'll even exalt that which is good and wonderful like family and put it in a place that is rightfully only for God and God alone. Now let me be clear. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to love our children or to be committed or to love our parents. Family is not evil. What Jesus is saying, the problem is when we exalt something or someone to a place that belongs to God alone. Think about it this way. If there really is a God, and if he's the creator of all things, and if he created you, and if he created me, if everything in, in existence draws its very life from God, and if he's eternal without beginning or without end, if we are infinitely dependent upon him for our existence every moment, every second of our life, and if our connection to this God in one form or another will exist for eternity, then does it not follow that our relationship to this creator should be first before everything else, should have supremacy in our lives. See, what Jesus is trying to say here is that the one who created your mother, who created your father, your son, your daughter, deserves your allegiance more than they do. Do we recognize the supremacy of God over our life? Have we surrendered that to him? Because those who do not have given their allegiance to some lesser Thing. Jesus is clearly letting us know that he and he alone is worthy of our worship. Now there's something else that uh, Jonah struggles with and that's self-righteousness. Of course we all do, right? Amen? I mean self-righteousness is the human condition. Remember the story of Jonah again? He flees from God. He's afraid that God will, will forgive Israel's enemy. And then chapter 2, he gets swallowed by a big fish and he's, he's praying in the belly of this fish and he discovers that he needs God's forgiveness and, and a deeper need for God's grace. And then he finishes up his prayer by saying something like this. Listen, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of, joy, of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. That's kind of interesting. You see, Jonah has, had seen some of his need for grace, but there's still a little pride left in him. And so he says, yeah, pagans have idols. Pagans pray to the idols, but, but God, I pray to you and to you alone. So his self-righteousness has been somewhat diminished but not fully destroyed. Jonah wants to justify himself through his performance and through his effort to, to boast of his own goodness and, and his own accomplishments. 
And that's why he has this spiritual temper tantrum. Temper tantrum. He, he felt that mercy had to be deserved. And by golly, the Ninevites didn't deserve it. And in my opinion, this is the biggest hindrance to the spiritual life among church folks. You see, like Jonah, we know we need grace and mercy. We know that it's only by Jesus' death on the cross that, that we could be made righteous. I mean, we have heard that since we were little kids in Sunday school. But in the back of our minds, we're still thinking, yeah, but I deserve it. And until we can get that into our thick skulls, that we can never justify ourselves, that we cannot earn God's grace, that we don't deserve God's love, but that it's a free gift, will we ever have a chance of understanding what it means to live a Christian life? And in this, Jonah teaches us that there are actually two ways that we can run from God. The first way is to simply say no to God and run the other way. But there's another way, and that is to try to diligently follow all of the religious rules and regulations. And so we can run from God by becoming immoral and irreligious, but we can also run from God, listen, by trying to become very religious and very moral. And so we think to ourselves, if we're religiously observant, virtuous, and, and good, then we have paid our dues. Now God owes us. And he's obligated to answer our prayers just the way we want them answered. And he's obligated to, to bless us. My friends, this is not moving towards God in grateful joy and, and glad surrender and, and love. But instead, it's our way of controlling God and keeping him at an arm's distance. Jonah, he tries running both ways. First, he runs away from the Lord physically. He repents and agrees to preach and, and ask for God's grace. But when the Ninevites repent, Jonah bristles with self-righteous anger at God for his mercy to sinners. How dare he? But each time, God is one step ahead of him. You know, it takes a while for us to get there, doesn't it? It takes a while in our spiritual journey. It takes us a while to, to understand this grace and mercy. We learn from Jonah that understanding God's grace and, and being changed by it is always a journey. It doesn't happen in just one moment, in one defining moment. I used to think that way. That way. I thought, you know, once I surrender my life to Jesus or once I, once I receive the Holy Spirit, once I get baptized with water, once I join a great church or once I find healing or once I have this experience or read this book or, or hear this speaker, then I'm, I'm going to have it all figured out. That's the way I used to think. But the way I see it now, is it's more like peeling an onion. Once you get that first layer off, you think, that you finally arrived, that you're there. But then you discover there's another layer that you have to peel off. And then another. And then another. And sometimes you think, I'm not making any progress. But the truth is, each time, you're getting closer to the heart of God. Jonah's heart was like that. Every time it seemed like he had gotten to the very heart of God's grace, it turned out that he needed to peel away another layer. 
You see, folks, as long as we think that we have earned God's favor by, by being good, it will create in us pride and, and an inclination to look down upon everybody else. But self-righteousness will always create in us fear and anxiety. We'll always be wondering if we've done enough, if we're good enough, if God loves us enough. And if that becomes the basis of your happiness and anything threatens to, to overwhelm that, you'll find yourself plagued with anxiety and despair and anger. See, the truth is we live wholly by God's grace and we serve the Lord not in order to get something from him, but just for him, for his own sake, for the joy of knowing him, delighting in him, and yes, even becoming like him. So Jonah has a ways to go, but God is not done with him yet. Fortunately, God is very patient with us. Jonah leaves town, he climbs up on a hill and finds a place to sit down to watch. He's hoping beyond hope that, that maybe God will change his mind again and will destroy the city of Nineveh. And while he's sitting there, and it's a warm day, God causes a shade plant to grow very quickly. And it gives Jonah some shade. And the Bible says that, that Jonah is happy. In fact, he's not just happy. The Bible says that Jonah is very happy. Alas, he's thinking, things are starting to go my way. Alas, you know, my, my luck is starting to, to turn. So he thinks. Then God sends a worm that eats the plant, and the plant dies. And then God, I, can, I, you know, I think God just has a sense of humor. It says, God sent a scorching east wind. <laughs> He's having fun with Jonah, isn't he? And the sun blazed on Jonah's head. He's so hot, it says, that he grew faint. And what's his response? Jonah's temper flares again. Are you kidding me, God? I can't get a break. And again, he wants to die. But all this had been planned out by God. He was trying to teach Jonah something about his character. And so he says to him, Jonah, yes, Lord, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? Yes, God, it is right. And I'm so angry, I, I just wish I was dead. See, Jonah doesn't want to live in, in this world that he thinks unfair, a place where God doesn't punish evil. In verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's where it stops. Now, the New International Version Bible uses the word concern twice in verse 10 and verse 11. But I don't think it does that word, the, the, the Hebrew word justice. The, the Hebrew word means literally to act, to act with, with tears in one's eyes. In other words, is to have your heart broken, is to weep for it. 
So Jonah gets all worked up over a plant for which he did not labor, which he did not cause to grow. It was solely an undeserved gift from God, its creator and owner. And Jonah, he has no claim on it whatsoever. And yet Jonah wept over the plant. His heart became attached to it. And when it died, it grieved him. And so God says to Jonah, you weep over plants, but I weep over people. And in that he teaches Jonah something about his character, that God cares, that God deeply cares, and that he loves us, that he loves you, because he chooses to love you. And he weeps for us. He weeps for us when we head down the wrong way. But how do we, re how do we reconcile that this, this issue that Jonah wrestled with? How do we reconcile God's justice with his mercy? I mean, his holiness demands that evil be punished. We intuitively understand this. Whenever we read that, that justice has not come about, when, when somebody goes free who's committed a crime, we feel outraged. We think to ourselves, where is the justice? This is not right. And so the mistake that we oftentimes make is we come to the conclusion that either God smites all sinners or that he forgives everybody regardless. How can we hold judgment and mercy together. Jonah never found out. But we do. And it's the cross. You see, at the cross, God both judges evildoers and forgives them. At the cross, the justice of God exacted full punishment for sin. And that same exact moment provided mercy and grace for us. Now the book of Jonah ends abruptly. We never hear Jonah's reply back to God. It's like part of the book of Jonah is missing. It's like somebody forgot to write in the ending. But commentators believe that this was intentional. That it was a, a literary device to try to draw you and me, the readers, into answering the question that God proposes. How would you answer God's question? God's love is limitless. Where do you draw the line? Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your mercy for your grace that you love us so very much that you love us so very much and that there's nothing we can do about it we didn't earn it we don't deserve it but on the cross you proved that love oh God help us to, to do away with our self-righteousness and with our pride with uh, the thought that if we can just be good enough that you'll love us and accept us but God help us to understand that it's grace and mercy and that you'll love us. Hear this, our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.